Hello and welcome to Living in a Time of Dying, the podcast about living in a time of global pandemic, social upheaval and injustice, climate catastrophe, and mass extinction. This podcast is a companion to the eponymous book, Living in a Time of Dying, Cries of Grief, Rage, Love, and Hope, co-authored by myself and Taoist mystic, Toltec I Ching master, wisdom teacher, and my dear friend, William Douglas Horden. I'm your host, Megan Elizabeth Tauk, a writer, philosopher, soul mentor, perpetual student, and mother of possums. In this podcast, I and my guests will engage with a selection of chapters from the book to explore the questions, the conundrums, paradox, and fractal edges of this thing called living. This is an invitation to commune and feel together the weight of these times with all the grief, rage, love, and hope that it arouses within us so that together we may dream a new world into being. Welcome, friends, listeners. Today, I'm in conversation with my friend, Dr. Jason Corwin. Welcome, Jason. Hi, good morning, to everyone here that's Onatuakakoeno, uh, or otherwise known as Seneca language, for I'm thankful that all of you are well. Mm. So hopefully everyone is very well or getting into an, a better place of wellness by tuning into this podcast. Mm, thank you so much for that for that welcoming, Jason. And I'm really glad to have you here with me and with all of us. Um, Jason is a professor of Indigenous Studies at University of Buffalo and the founding director of the Seneca Media and Communication Center. He's an activist, educator, and filmmaker who produced the powerful documentary Denying Access about the 2016 fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock. Today, we're going to be talking about Chapter 10 in the book Living in a Time of Dying, and that chapter is titled, A Crisis of Belonging. In this chapter, I diagnose a crisis of belonging within the modern westernized world, characterized as it is by an ethic of individualism following generations of colonization. This crisis, I argue, is due to an ideology of separation and division that fosters a profound sense of alienation, insecurity, and thus threat by and resistance to both other people and the natural world. In contrast to this modern Western crisis of belonging, I engage the work of Apache Latina philosopher Viola F. Cordova from her posthumous book, How It Is, The Native American Philosophy of V.F. Cordova. Cordova outlines a broadly representative indigenous American ethic of mutual respect and reciprocity, as well as land or place-based connection, which, I argue, offers a poignant alternative to the ideology of separation touted in the modern Western colonial worldview. I also engage a psychosocial lens to the experience of insecurity and fear which is engendered by such an ideology of separation, and which teaches us, often in very subtle and subconscious ways, that we do not belong, that we are unworthy, and that we must thus prove our worth over and against other people and nature. It is this insecurity, this crisis of belonging, which is at the root of social supremacisms and exploitation of humans and non-humans alike. But, engaging Cordova's philosophy, I argue that this experience of alienation, unworthiness, and insecurity 
is actually a misperception of reality, bred from the modern Western colonial ideology of separation, and that our belonging, both to each other as social beings and to this earth community on which or whom we depend, is in fact non-negotiable. It is our birthright. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of our discussion here today, Jason, I like to invite my guests to kind of introduce and define themselves. You know, I gave you a little bio at the top there, but I think it's important for people to put in their own words, you know, who they are, where they come from, and the work that they're doing. So if you'd like to, however you would like our our listeners to know you, I welcome you to do that now. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm very honored to be here. And you know, I really deeply appreciated the book when I read it. And when I saw that you engaged with Cordova, who I also had cited in my dissertation, that made me uh, very happy to see there because what a beautiful thinker and soul who, who left us at a fairly early age, um, but left quite a powerful um, set of ideas for us to continue to engage with. So my position, my story, I, I am Anatdawatga, which are more commonly known as the Seneca Nation. Uh, that is my citizenship and the culture that I come from. Um, we are a matrilineal people and, and my mother was from the Cattaraugus Territory which is in modern day Western New York, about 45 minutes south of the city of Buffalo. And our uh, Aboriginal homeland stretched all the way from the Finger Lakes, where I met you, Megan, in mm-hmm. Ithaca many, many years ago, um, all the way uh, out, out to here and across through the, the uh, Western Finger Lakes and the Genesee Valley and, and out to Buffalo Creek and, and the Niagara Falls and Lake Erie area, where our territories are now. And I'm of the Deer Clan. We have eight clans among our people. And I and my father is a non-native from the Philadelphia area, Euro-American, primarily from the British Isles peoples. And... Uh, interestingly, some of my ancestors on my father's side, um, uh, uh, one who is well documented about four or five generations back, um, passed through this area and, and uh, met with one of the famous chiefs, Red Jacket, who's been very well quoted and, and documented in, in history. Um, as, as well as people from my brother-in-law's community, uh, an Anishinaabe community, um, about a nine-hour drive from here uh, called Wakwimakong. And so it's, that's who I am. I, w- I was born in the early 70s and uh, in the city of New Haven. And I... Uh, my I was also born or, in New Haven. Are you serious? I... I I did not know that about you. (laughs) About a decade or later after me. Yeah. Yep. Yep. 82 is me. (laughs) Oh, wow. We were still living there. Oh, wow. At that time. Yeah. I lived there in in that area till I was 
um, just turned 15. And then we moved to New Jersey and, and I lived there for about five years before then living a decade in Philly, my, my twenties. Um, as a teen, I got involved with people from the American Indian movement and, uh, started traveling but you know i was able to drive and and go places i ended up moving to philadelphia and getting more involved with folks from aim who were working on, on the case of leonard peltier in particular political prisoner leonard peltier uh, as well as a wide variety of issues and in, in 1992 when you were 10 years old um that was the 500th uh, anniversary or quincentenary of uh, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, as they teach American school children to uh, say, and um, probably still do in in some places. I'm sure they times do. Yeah. Are changing. Uh, there is still a, a deep level of uh, ignorance and unawareness, uh, thanks to education and the media about indigenous peoples. Um, I am, as you said, I've been a filmmaker for a long time. I got into filmmaking in my twenties as, uh, an outgrowth of that activist work or those, those connections there. I'd always, I'd had a lifelong interest in photography ever since I was three years old. And, and my dad and I were walking down the street in Providence, Rhode Island, where we lived for two years, um, and I saw a broken camera in a trash bin or a trash pile, and, and it caught my attention. I was drawn to it, and my dad looked at it and said, oh, I can fix this. And, and he did and gave it to me as my first camera and taught me how to develop film in a dark room and uh, that good old school film stuff, which I then, in, in high school and college, I was able to do some more uh, darkroom stuff but well i embraced the the digital age my whole life while also always being very much into the outdoors and learning um, traditional technologies and and skills and um, just learning about the natural world and so I've also been an environmental educator and I've lived off grid way back in the woods and, and for the last 20 years, as of this past autumn equinox, that was my 20th anniversary mm -hmm. since starting that journey to really grow deeply and building my skill set with renewable energy and green building and agriculture and being in a good relationship with the natural world. And that was outside of Ithaca as I, I ended up at Cornell University and in my late 20s, a decade older than my fellow undergrads <clears throat> after a 10-year career approximately as a paramedic in Philadelphia and, and coming to Cornell for communications because my interest in documentary filmmaking uh, led me there. And actually an, an elder in AIM, uh, Chief Billy Redwing Tyak, I was helping him out with 
gathering up um, some firewood and preparation for the Sundance that was held at their their land, the Piscataway Nation land in Southern Maryland. And uh, he just said to me, you know, Jason, we need people like you to go to college. You should check out Cornell. My niece went there and she loved it. And they have this American Indian program. And so one time while driving between Philadelphia and Buffalo, I detoured and uh, took a tour of Cornell and they were so welcoming. And so I ended up, that's how I ended up in Ithaca. Mm, which is where our, our story begins as mm -hmm. we met some uh, almost 20 years ago when you mm -hmm. were running the, the Green Gorillas or Green Guerillas program uh, mm -hmm. with, with our friend, our mutual friend, Che, who's also been a guest mm -hmm. on the podcast. Um, Excellent. Yeah. And, and in that, in that program, you know, you, it, you were, um, you were bringing together your, your environmental activism and also your media interest in um, bringing up some young people, um, teaching them, teaching the media skills and also educating them about sustainability and colonization, histories of resistance and activism. Um, it was a really, really awesome program. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, I remember the bus. And folks can read about that program if they if they Google you. I found your, uh, I don't know if it was an article or part of your dissertation. Um, it's online, so look it up, Green Guerillas. Yeah, two R's, two L's. Indeed. Uh, for, for gorillas. And we do, there's the article I wrote. There is also, it's still up there, the blog that we had about the program. And that's oh, under nice. uh, Gorilla Griots, G-R-I-O-T-S, uh, Human Rights Center. I, I think it's it's gorillagriots.blogspot.com maybe. I, it's been years since I looked at it. but And nice. there's also a YouTube channel. Um YouTube slash user slash stamp, S-T-A-M-P-C-N-Y. Oh, yes, so you can see uh, some of that that history for those of your listeners who, who like to go off on, on research tangents. Yeah, it's, it's good memories. One question that I have, you know, it's really nice just to sit with you and hear your story because, you know, I, I feel like every time I've been I've, I've met with you. It's like kind of in passing, we're doing a project, we're at an event, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. so I've never actually like heard your story, heard that you were born in, in New Haven, like myself. Right. Um, so it's just really nice to kind of to, to hear to hear your whole story. One question I have for you before we move on is how you know William, because you also know William Horden, um, you know, my <laughs> co-author of this book. And that was sort of a surprise to me. I didn't realize that you guys had connected. And so I'm curious how, how you met him over the years. Yeah. And, and now a uh, little over a decade ago, it was the summer of 2012 when I met him. Um, so without going into a, a, a super long story, but back while we were doing uh, Green Gorillas project, uh, I, I threw very mystical circumstances, a copy of his book, The Toltec I Ching, or I Ching, as some people pronounce it, uh, came into my possession. And... I found it so resonant and began using it and and followed the instructions in it. And then I ended up hearing about that he was 
going to be he and Martha, the artist for the book, were going to be giving a class the summer of 2012 and in uh, like a deep dive into how to work with it. And so I, I spent a weekend with them uh, Friday night and all day Saturday and Sunday uh, doing that deep dive and then end up years later that that uh, while they were living in Ithaca and the summers as they split their time with Mexico, um, being the adorable retired couple that they are and flowing in, in their way with their life and, and going mm-hmm. down to, um, you know, see the good work of their their daughter at a nature preserve in Mexico and the, and the grandchildren and everything that they were living, you know, like <laughs> uh, three quarters of a mile down from my mother-in-law. Mm. So, so continued connections and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I was so thankful to get to see them uh, around my birthday this past summer and and get a copy of um, the Shapeshifters Almanac and just, you know, picking that up and, and the gems and jewels that are in there, you know, it's so when, you know, when I found out that you were co-authoring a book together, you know, just hearing that was made my heart so happy. Mm. But then to finally get to read it and um, be so deeply moved by the the content. It's I, I'm, I'm so glad to be here today and for us mm. to have this conversation and get to know each other better because we've always been on the go kind of people. It's like, okay, you know, we're having this, uh, I see you at our event or I see you at our film screening or, you know, we're or, or passing at, at the grocery store. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Jason. That's really beautiful to hear. And I love the the mystical nature of your meeting with William. Sometimes, um, sometimes you know, it's like it, it's like we get pulled into each other's orbit, and we can't actually we we can't fight that. You know, when when <laughs> no, when we come totally into each natural. other's lives, and we just keep mm-hmm. on you know bouncing around each other's worlds, kind of like you and me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Again, we only have so much time here, and it's lovely to to sit and chat with you. Um, the meat and potatoes. The meat and potatoes. You know, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump into the meat and potatoes here. So, okay, I have so many topics that we could go into. It's hard to know which way to go. So, I'm just gonna start here. So, in the book, I argue, as I said at the beginning, that we're experiencing a crisis of belonging due to an ethic of separation, individualism, competition, and scarcity-mindedness, all of which, of course, are foundational to capitalism. And by the way, I want to be clear that the we, I specif- that, that, that we I specify in the book refers to those of us who have forgotten what I term our indigeneity, forgotten that we belong to a place, to a people, to a culture, a language, and a life way due to the violent enclosure and dispossession of colonization. That is to say, I do not presume that we to be universal, and I acknowledge that there are those who may not experience a crisis of belonging. But I would argue that for all of us living under or within colonization, which of course includes all of us here on what is known as the so-called United States, uh, that we are at the very least living in a position of resistance to such forgetting, of resistance to such a crisis of belonging. And so What I'm here referring to as belonging, again, I argue in the book that Cordova describes through an ethic of respect for other as other, which honors diversity, a recognition of the interrelatedness and mutual reciprocity of all beings, and a rootedness to place, which she refers to as bounded space. And I'm wondering, 
you know, what does belonging mean to you? And how would or do you define or experience belonging? Hmm. Belonging for me personally is really about the land and family and community. And, you know, when, especially once I had made that move to Cornell and was then in the Finger Lakes and around the, the ancestral homelands and, and immersed in the natural landscape that's so beautiful, all the waterfalls and the gorges and, um, you know, the very fertile areas and, and where all of our history and stories for, for many, many generations uh, goes to. And so being remaining in, in that area uh, and um, getting to know the land better, that there's certainly an, a strong sense of belonging that comes with that. And being that my um, family is in the area and the communities I care about gives, you know, it, it's just nurtures my, my soul and being to, um, to be in connection with that. And in terms of the crisis that you bring up in this chapter, and uh, I, I think it's very obvious that in, in the 20th century and even earlier, that there was a crisis of belonging for the people who came from faraway places. And we see this in, in a whole phenomenon that I, I don't want to go into too much detail about and people can Google because there's just been a ton about it in, in particularly in the last two years about a phenomena called that people are calling pretendianism. Uh, we used to call it when I was growing up wannabes and there's you know, we particularly saw a, a, a lot of cultural shifts in the 1960s and as a lot of uh, young Euro-Americans started to look to other cultures for some philosophical and spiritual answers to a crisis of belonging that, that they were feeling. And, and they wanted to, uh, they felt that the the militarism and the uh, earth-raping industrialism and the stifling family relationships and, and very uh, limited uh, understandings of how, what constitutes family in a quote-unquote, you know, right and moral sense. There, there was so much rebellion against that. And, and so we saw people uh, looking to the East and, and uh, looking to India and to other Asian knowledge systems, indigenous knowledge systems and, and, and religions and, and ways of life. Uh, and right at home here, was, there, there was quite a, uh, an interest and, and Native peoples, especially once after, after 1973 and the um, incident at Wounded Knee, 
on the Pine Ridge Reservation and, and the um, armed standoff of over the independent Oglala Nation and, and, and the entire uh, law enforcement and, and military might of the United States as well as um, state and, and local forces against people. All of a sudden, Native people were sort of back on the um, consciousness of the, the larger population because we had been out of sight out of mind you know on primarily rural reservations and with uh, mm -hmm. only a small population in North America Canada US uh, in particular a little different in Mexico uh, but a substantially reduced population the survivors of genocide and 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 not only physically but uh, then, from the 1800s into the 1900s, a policy of, of cultural genocide through forced schooling uh, run by the government and the churches to disconnect us from mm. that, which, which made us who we were. Uh, and, and so people can read all about it if, if they're not already aware. And, but, which I would, I would interject is also ongoing today, particularly with the, um, the case around ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act and the, this controversy around taking Native children out of their Native communities and uh, have them being adopted into white families and um, as, Absolutely. A, as a continuation of that genocide. Yeah. Yeah. All these, that the fact that there are children that are needing adoption and needing foster care is a direct result uh, from what those boarding schools caused. The, the fact that they were run by sadistic, pedophilic people, uh, and 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 on top of the explicit goal being, you know, by mm -hmm. their very yeah. own words, to to erase the savagery and barbarism of, of, right. of these pagan peoples and replace them uh, 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 with uh, white Christian values. And Kill the Indian, save the man. Exactly. That was the, the yep. literal quote from um, Pratt, who started when the first uh, schools, uh, the Carlisle Indian School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is just about a five hour drive south of here where I'm at right now. I'm talking to you from Buffalo. So I, I, I bring up, I just preface what I want to share with, with people being aware of, of this idea of um, pretendianism and wannabeism because it's it's very different from what we're going to talk about as, as being a way for um, people to reconnect to their indigenous roots. Because uh, in, a, in a capitalist society, everything is for sale and, and people have a sense uh, on, of entitlement through these ideas of manifest destiny uh, and and the like, or or religious supremacy, that that anything is for anyone. You can either buy it or you can take it and assume that mantle. And so, there's always been a fascination from from the earliest contacts of of people, quote unquote, going native. And and you see this in movies like Dances with Wolves or Last of the Mohicans, um, and and. What actually happened in history that there were all these books written in the 1800s about um, 
white women captives of, of uh, natives and, and conflicts and these sort of frontier novels. And what actually happened when, when non-native peoples, whether um, European ancestry or whether of African ancestry who, who um, had found refuge from slavery amongst indigenous peoples, uh, found a life of, of a great deal of uh, respect and freedom and connection. And therefore, when, when attempts were made to entice them to return to colonial society, uh, non-indigenous society were uh, often rebuffed and people wanted to stay where, in a place where women had reproductive rights and had decision-making over households, unlike where in, in colonial society where women were treated as property and didn't even have the right to vote until the early 20th century uh, to participate in politics like that. So there, there is always uh, um, been that, but in the 60s and 70s and into now, we see people wanting to fabricate identities because they so don't want to identify what their actual mm -hmm. background is because they see it as as, as being shameful um, colonizing and shameful yeah. they they make up these identities of indigenous ancestry and and particularly within academia uh and 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 somewhat in the media business uh, in canada there's been these exposés of uh, academics and and uh, same thing in uh, on this side of the river, this side of the border. That people who've been fraudulent <laughs> their whole lives and careers, um, because not everybody sits and, and takes the time to do the detective work and interrogate somebody's genealogy. And the reality is, there there's um, due to intermixing of hundreds of years. There's a lot of different phenotypes and there are a lot of very uh, light skinned and, and more European features presenting uh, people. So you can't just say, you know, does somebody look native or not? Though, because of the, the anti-blackness in this society at large, uh, those people tend to be given more of a pass than, than um, actual native people who are um, present more African looking in people's mm -hmm. minds. So there's been a whole phenomenon of that, that, mm -hmm. that if you follow native Twitter or these spaces that, that there's um, been a lot of calling out of that for better or for worse. I mean, it certainly needs to be spoken on and addressed, but also some people get a little bit witch hunty, uh, you could say about it and, and very judgmental. And, and these are native people who, who they get a little too caught up in that negativity and, and they're just, you know, running around, um, bashing everybody and questioning everybody's identity. So that's that's part of the context and 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 of of the now, um, but what I really wanted to share with you today is as somebody that I'm sure you you're very aware of, but your um, listeners may or may not be one of my teachers, um, uh, John Trudell, 
speaks a lot about this. And and John Trudell for those uh, I'll, I'll give the briefest of bio. Uh, he he was. Uh, one of the spokespersons for the American Indian movement. Uh, he's Dakota and, and his, and Mexican. And he, he was a Vietnam veteran and a spokesperson for the and occupation of Alcatraz Island in, I, I, in the late sixties, early seventies. I'm not a historian. I forget the exact date. I can't remember it was 69 or 71, but it, it was before Wounded Knee in 73. And he, he would go on to be an extremely powerful philosopher and spokesperson for native rights, for earth rights, and for um, people of any background to recognize their uh, tribal ancestry as a human being and to remember and uh, what it means to belong to the earth and, and spoke a lot. So it resonated with people all over that, that listened, not just native people to the point that he amassed probably one of the largest FBI files in history where they said in one of the teletypes about him. He's extremely eloquent and therefore extremely dangerous. Hmm. And there's a lot of history of, of AIM in the 70s that people can Google about and then about Wounded Knee and the Leonard Peltier case. Uh, and, and so in 1978 or 79, uh, in protest of the incarceration of Leonard Peltier, uh, he, John Trudell, burned the American flag in front of the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. And within about 24 hours, the home where he lived with his wife and her mother and their three children was uh, arsoned and burned down, killing uh, all the aforementioned family members. Um, that was on the, the Duck Valley Reservation in Nevada. And so with that tremendous tragedy, and you can find videos from uh, uh, the early 80s where, where he spoke in Canada and, and asked for political asylum there. And, and he was, you know, coping with with that grief and that that political reality that he was a targeted man by the racist law enforcement of the United States government, the secret police, the Gestapo of, of the United States, and followed everywhere and such. So during that time period of, of you know, unimaginable grief, losing three children, your spouse and and your mother-in-law who probably you know loved him dearly and and he loved her dearly too like i loved my mother-in-law you know um he words started coming to him uh as, as what people would call poetry and he started writing it down and he said that that was that was his salvation uh and and so it's it's some very powerful words that he continued to to share up until his, his passing some uh, years ago. And so I wanted to read 
a piece from him. And then I wanted to uh, share a, a recording from him. Um, but maybe we'll just start with a short quote that I just saw on Facebook from the tribute to John Trudell page, which if, if you like getting nice quotes about things and you're on Facebook, uh, check that out. He said, all human beings are descendants of tribal people who were spiritually alive, intimately in love with the natural world, children of Mother Earth. When we were tribal people, we knew who we were, we knew where we were, and we knew our purpose. This sacred perception of reality remains alive and well in our genetic memory. We carry it inside of us, usually in a dusty box in the mind's attic, but it is accessible. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. And, 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 uh, I was very fortunate to meet John at different points in my life. I, I listened to his stuff, you know, uh, like on repeat, he, he, he put out his first albums on, on self-produced cassette tapes in the eighties. Um, you know, they actually had, 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 had the jacket cover and everything. They, um, looked like, legit it wasn't just you know passed it wasn't just around like mixtapes yeah. mix i mean but of course we we made those on, at, at, at first and, and my friend's copy is like when i first heard it oh, i have to have this uh and and so times they were kind, they were polite in their sophistication, smiling but never too loudly, acting in civilized manner, an illusion of gentleness always fighting to get their way, while the people see, the people know, the people wait, the people say, the closing of your doors will never shut us out, the closing of your doors can only shut you in, we know the predator, we see them feed on us. We are aware to starve the beast is our destiny. The times they were kind, they were polite, but never honest. We see your technological society devour you before your very eyes. We hear your anguished cries exalting greed through progress. While you seek material advances, the sound of flowers dying carry messages through the wind trying to tell you about balance and your safety but your minds are chained to your machines and the strings dangling from your puppeteer's hands turning you twisting you into forms and confusions beyond your control your mind for a job your mind for a tv your mind for a hairdryer your mind for consumption with your atom bombs, your material bombs, your drug bombs, your racial bombs, your class bombs, your sexist bombs, your ageist bombs, devastating your natural shelters, making you homeless on earth, chasing you into illusions, fooling you, making you pretend you can run away from the ravishing of your spirit, while the sound of flowers dying carry messages through the wind, trying to tell you about balance and your safety. Trying to isolate us in a dimension called loneliness. Leading us into the trap. Believe in their power, but not in ourselves. Piling us with guilt. Always taking the blame. Greed chasing out the balance. Trying to isolate us in a dimension called loneliness. 
economic deity seizing power. Through illusions created, armies are justified. Class systems are democracy. God listens to warmongers' prayers. Tyranny is here. Divide and conquer, trying to isolate us in a dimension called loneliness. Greed a parent. Insecurity the happiness companion. Genocide conceived in sophistication. Technologic material civilization, a rationalization, replacing a way to live, trying to isolate us in a dimension called loneliness. To God, we hope you don't mind, but we would like to talk to you. There are some things we need to straighten out. It's about these Christians. They claim to be from your nation. But man, you should see the things they do all the time, blaming it on you. Manifest destiny, genocide, maximize profit, sterilization, raping the earth, lying, taking more than they need in all the forms of the greed. We ask them why. They say it's God's will. Damn God, they make it so hard. Remember Jesus? Would you send him back to them? Tell them not to kill him. Rather, they should listen. Stop abusing his name and yours. We do not mean to be disrespectful, but you know how it is. Our people have their own ways. We never even heard of you until not long ago. Your representative spoke magnificent things of you, which we were willing to believe. But from the way they acted, we know you and we were being deceived. We do not mean you or your Christian children any bad, but you all came to take all we had. We have not seen you, but we have heard so much. It is time for you to decide what life is worth. We already remember, but maybe you forgot. Look at us. Look at us. We are of earth and water. Look at them. It is the same. Look at us. We are suffering all these years. Look at them. They are connected. Look at us. We are in pain. Look at them, surprised at our anger. Look at us. We are struggling to survive. Look at them, expecting sorrow be benign. Look at us. We are the ones called pagan. Look at them on their arrival. Look at us. We are called subversive. Look at them descending from name callers. Look at us. We wept sadly in the long dark. Look at them hiding in technologic light. Look at us. We buried the generations. Look at them inventing the body count. Look at us. We are older than America. Look at them chasing a fountain of youth. Look at us. We are embracing earth. Look at them clutching today. Look at us, we are living in the generations. Look at them, existing in jobs and debt. Look at us, we have escaped many times. Look at them, they cannot remember. Look at us, we are healing. Look at them, their medicine is patented. Look at us, we are trying. Look at them, what are they doing? Look at us, we are children of Earth. Look at them, who are they? Yeah, so that's that's a really powerful piece, and and I mean, given the time, I think it would probably we would be best served to um, listen to that again, and and as the getting into um, yeah our our next conversation together, because uh, if I yeah may, that's <laughs> as we as we as we close out this session, you know, I'm I'm sitting here with tears in my eyes, I'm holding my heart, um. And 
feeling, you know, a big piece of, of this chapter and of the book, you know, that I talk about is trauma. And it's something I think I think about a lot is the the historical and colonial trauma that I carry, you know, that we carry collectively, but personally that I carry as a white settler. And uh, and so I just want to name that that pain that we all carry that's that comes so clear through both the history that you've been talking about and obviously also through that clip. And I think, you know, we'll land it here and we'll pick up with that, the trauma of this crisis of belonging, the trauma of that history and the real experiential pain that we carry collectively and personally in our next session. So thank you. And I really look forward to continuing this conversation with you another time. And I feel so badly that I didn't that I didn't foresee that this was, of course, going to take much longer than an hour. <laughs> Way longer than an hour. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, we, we've got uh, yeah. uh, definitely more to talk on this. It's, uh, it, it's yeah. you know, his words provide uh, uh, some a, a light, a star to look to to the nature of of healing for everyone for all people because he really uh, dives into how colonialism affected the settlers who came here, how they were already colonized in their own countries and then came and reproduced that. And now we, as native peoples, we reproduce it in, in, in lateral mm-hmm. violence and in, in our own communities. And so, as you said, we, we all have, different places to heal with this collective uh, dysfunction that is that this um, sickness that's plaguing humanity and we have the opportunity in this day and age in a globally connected through technology ironically network we we i see it with my students i see it in the people i interact with i saw it at standing rock i'm seeing these powerful shifts taking place um so i would love for us to you know get into that next time yes absolutely thank you so much thank you dear listeners for joining us in this episode of the living in a time of dying podcast if you are moved by the material discussed here you can read or listen to more in the eponymous book living in a time of dying cries of grief rage love and hope coming soon both in print and audio from booksellers everywhere. And if you want to hear more, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts in order to be updated when new episodes drop. You can also find out more about my work at soulmentor.org. Until next time, remember, you are an enfoldment of the universe, showing care to itself. Everything is God. Live well die easy. In Love and Rage, I'm your host, Megan Elizabeth Tauk. Take care and be well. Mm -hmm.